You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Matthew 1, 18 through 2, 23, the risks and rewards of saying yes to God. So last time we started our study in the book of Matthew, we looked at Jesus's genealogy showing that he had the credentials, the prophetic credentials in the line that he was born in to be the Messiah. And we talked a lot about this idea that even in the genealogy of the people that made up the the composition of Jesus's family, we see an important truth, an important reality of who God is, that he loves to draw sinful people to himself. And Matthew is one of the, our author is one of the greatest examples of that, being a tax collector, a social outcast, and a wicked man who Jesus called to be one of his disciples. This week, we're going to look at three major figures. We're going to look at Mary, Joseph, and the Magi, and look at the question of what do we do when God asks us to do something? What does it look like to say yes to God? What's involved with that? And what are some of the aspects of what happens when we say no to God? So we start where we left off last week, Matthew 1, verse 18. And this is, <laughs> this is the major passage in Matthew about the birth of Christ. You can tell this is not the, the, Jesus's birth is not the central focus of Matthew. He says, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so the emphasis and the focus here is really kind of more on Mary at this point than Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how old Mary was at this time. The Bible doesn't speak to that, but Jewish history does. And what was common in this area of the world and much of the world during this time period was girls were getting married starting around 12, 13 years old and often would be married by the time they were 17. That's just very difficult for us to comprehend in our modern culture, but this was normal in ancient Israel and in much of the world during that time. You got to remember the average lifespan of a person during this time was like 35. People did not typically, there were people that lived to be old, but it was not typical that people lived to be 50, 60, 70 years old. She was betrothed to Joseph when we find her in the story, and typically a Jewish betrothal lasted for one year, and it was a very serious commitment It was essentially the same as being married, but you didn't live together and you couldn't sleep together. But in every other way, legally, you were husband and wife. If Joseph had died during this betrothal, Mary would have been, had received his inheritance and would have been considered to be his widow. That's how strong the sense of betrothal was in Jewish culture. And so this 13, 14 year old girl is suddenly pregnant as a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Which is really something kind of amazing to consider 
putting the weight of something like that on someone that age. And how would that work? Like, what would be going through Mary's mind? Did she volunteer? Was there a conversation? Or was it just like her belly started growing and she was like, I haven't had sex. I must be pregnant with the Messiah. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us a whole lot about it, but Luke does in chapter one. We really kind of get some of the questions answered of the dynamics of this through the gospel of Luke. Luke 1, 26 through 29, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. So most of the time when angels appear and interact with people, it's people falling on their face before these incredible beings of light. But this incredible being of light appears before Mary and says, greetings, favored one. And Luke appropriately records, this really perplexed Mary at this statement. (laughs) There's an angel telling me I'm the favored one of the Lord. And she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. This is great, a great example of sort of the hints that we get. Luke claimed that he interviewed all the people that were living around the time and the eyewitness events of Christ. How would Luke have this kind of detail if he hadn't talked to Mary? You can just see by the way this is worded. Luke went and was like, so how did you find out you were pregnant? And she was like, Angel Gabriel showed up and said, greetings, favored one. And I didn't know what the heck was going on. I was perplexed. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how does that work? Because I'm a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. So let's talk about Mary. What is God asking this 13, 14-year-old girl? What is involved here? He's asking her to be the mother of the Messiah. And I think it's important to understand that this was a conversation where Mary had a choice. This isn't something that she was forced to do. A virgin pregnancy, God is asking her to tell everyone including her betrothed husband, Joseph. No, really, I didn't have sex. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, which is a pretty incredible ask of anyone, let alone a young girl. I mean, she had to be thinking through things like, what will Joseph think? How am I going to convince anyone that I've been faithful It really puts her in a difficult bind where she is facing serious 
social condemnation. She will not be popular because of this. People will not believe her. And her reaction is, she's clearly surprised and uncomfortable. And look at, again, what Luke says. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, how is it that an angel of God is coming here and calling me a favored one? And then I think it's also important to note that Mary asks reasonable questions. Hey, I'm not a virgin. How can I be pregnant? And that Gabriel's response is not what we often would imagine. I think a lot of us think God hates questions. And some of us are raised to believe that, right? We go to church and we ask questions and someone says, have more faith. How dare you question God? Here, the angel Gabriel is before her telling her God has an incredible mission for her. And she's like, can we get into the details of how this is gonna work? And she's not, she's not chastised for that. God doesn't hate questions. God loves questions. And she's asking a very reasonable question. When you sense that God is asking you to do something, it is not unreasonable for you to ask him to explain in more detail what's going on. He may not answer, but it's, it's not a bad thing to take a, question, a, a, a questioning posture. God, help me understand this. You know, if you sense that you're being called to be a missionary, it's okay to say, like, is, is that what's best for me? Where do you want me to go? How, do, how does that work? How can lead me, God, into understanding your plan for my life? But ultimately, this young girl who's put in this impossible situation, with, who's going to face incredible difficulty if she says yes, she says yes. Look at what she says in Luke 1:38. She says, "Behold, the bondslave of the Lord of, of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word." And the angel departed from her. She said yes to an amazing ask. And she would have fully understood the potential consequences of saying yes to God. She would be seen as an adulterer. She was betrothed to Joseph, and she as a young girl would be in a position where almost certainly no one would believe her, oh, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They would be suspicious of Joseph, and then they would be suspicious of anyone other than Joseph before they would believe that a virgin had, had conceived without sexual intercourse. And it would be very difficult to make an argument in any other way. She could lose Joseph. In her culture, adultery was a high crime. And Joseph would be well within his rights to call off the wedding, call off the marriage. Mary could be labeled as sexually immoral. Her parents could cast her out of the house. She could be on the streets pregnant and alone. That's within the realm, absolutely, of what this culture and the way that this culture might have reacted to a 14-year-old girl saying she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She could be stoned, executed publicly, both for adultery and for blasphemy of claiming to be pregnant by God. That's the culture she lives in. 
And her answer is yes. She could easily become a social outcast, not just for a time until it passes, but to be known as Mary the adulterer the rest of her life, who had the nerve to, comp- to try to convince people that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that what Mary was con- committing to was incredibly difficult. You know, well into Jesus's life, people would hint and mock and claim that he was a bastard. And she would live the life of seeing God born, being his mother, raising him, and then watching him live a very difficult life. Not a life of wealth and comfort and acceptance, but Jesus would grow into a person who was designed and committed to standing against the world system, tearing down the false religion of men who had distorted and perverted the word of God. And eventually she would sit at the foot of a cross and watch her son die for the sins of mankind. That was a big yes for a 14-year-old girl. And I think the thing that I really want to convey, the thing I really want to talk about here is saying yes to God has risks associated with it. Maybe not risks like Mary's risks, but they're risks all the same. Sharing our faith is scary. When you're taking the garbage out at night and your neighbor's out there and you have an opportunity to talk to them about something real, That's a scary situation. And when God tugs at the strings of your heart and says, you should go over there and talk to them, that's an opportunity to say yes to God when that happens. It's also an opportunity to say no to God. Saying yes to God means holding to unpopular moral standards. Our culture is spinning out of control with a whole list of crazy immoral thinking in so many different pockets, in so many different areas, and holding to a Judeo-Christian moral value is becoming increasingly unpopular in our culture. Are you gonna say yes to God and stand out against the relativism of the culture in our country? Saying yes to God for you could result in rejection from your family. People could be like, you're not becoming one of those, are you? Are you going to become a Bible thumper? Are you going to become one of those conservative right-wing Christians that, you know, just follows the party line? What does that mean? Many of you have experienced some of that kind of rejection because you've said yes to God. Negative associations, you know, There's a lot of wicked, terrible, awful things that a lot of people have done in the name of Christ throughout history, not to mention happening in our country today. It's very difficult to say to somebody who doesn't understand the Bible to say, I'm a Christian, because it lumps you in with a lot of people that, frankly, a lot of us in this room would ardently disagree with on a lot of topics. And yet, That's a long conversation. And when somebody identifies you as a Christian, you are easily lumped in with 
a false picture of a false God. It's difficult to say yes to God. If you say yes to God, you'll be called to a life of love, a, a life of relationship, a life of filled with people and purpose and meaning, but it'll probably mean making sacrifices in terms of your career, in terms of how much money you could make. Because it means investing yourself in things other than material success. It means prioritizing people over things. And there'll be real consequences on the trajectory of your life that are not that different from the consequences to Mary and the trajectory of her life by saying yes to God. Joseph is also in a very interesting situation. He's probably 15 to 19. Now, there are some extra biblical sources that claim that Joseph was 90. You're welcome for that mental image. Uh, the problem is those are extra biblical sources that date way later than the first century AD. And those are the same kinds of sources that claim Mary was a virgin perpetually throughout her life. And the Bible says she had other kids, not by the Holy Spirit. So all I can say is the marrying age for boys in Jewish culture, it was typical that they were maybe a little bit older, maybe 15 through 19. They went through apprenticeships and they were expected before they got married to be kind of set up with some kind of career. In Joseph's case, he was a carpenter. He was betrothed to Mary. And we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, we see Joseph's side. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, from a Jewish perspective, you're reading this and you're like, your betrothed wife shows up claiming she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit and Joseph's being a stand-up guy. He's not wanting in bitterness to out her to everyone. He doesn't believe she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But he's going to give her an opportunity that doesn't ruin her life while also not, doesn't force him to marry someone who he believes has been unfaithful. And as he was considering this, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So there is probably one way that Joseph could be convinced that Mary's telling the truth, but it didn't involve Mary. And I think it's interesting that the angel of the Lord doesn't say to Mary, don't worry, I'll talk to Joseph. I'll smooth things over for you. That wasn't part of the package that they discussed. The question that Mary was asked is, are you, or are you willing? And she said, yes. God, understanding the position that she was in, took her yes, and then appeared to her husband in the same way and said, look, she is not lying. I am telling you the truth. Don't send her away. She has not been unfaithful. But this then enters into a whole list of things that Joseph has to face. He's going to deny his legal right to, send, to, uh, to reject marrying a pregnant woman 
who was not pregnant by him. He's going to face public humiliation and disgrace. They're going to be like, oh, okay, the Holy Spirit. Nice job, Joseph. Couldn't wait a year. You just had to go in there right away. Or they're going to be like, so she's pregnant by another man, and you're going to still marry her. What kind of weakling are you? This culture would have looked at this situation and they would have said, either you're fornicating or you're capitulating. And either way, you're a weak male. Joseph then is also in the position of raising the Messiah. Imagine the responsibility that would come with that. You know, I think from time to time, we're asked to do things by God, like maybe mentor someone or lead a home church. And we feel like, oh, that's so much work. Imagine the load, the weight. I want you to be my dad. And the awesome feeling of responsibility that would come along with that. The point here is, is that God is very much willing to interrupt our plans. He very much interrupted Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were going to be a typical small town, Israel, blue collar family. They were going to get married within a year and they were going to start having kids and they were going to start building a life. And none of us ever would have known their names, but they said yes to God when asked, will you be a part of my plan? And God will interrupt your plans. He may interrupt what you want to do for a living. He may interrupt where you want to make your home. He may interrupt your attitude toward your career. He may interrupt your idea of what a family should be. And he may interrupt with how we fit into society. I know I came to Christ when I was 18 years old. And at 17 years old, my plan was to move out west and be a park ranger. Because I wanted to get away from people. I liked being in nature, and I just thought, you know, uh, maybe I'll get married and have a family up in the mountains somewhere, and I'll spend my days, you know, in the national parks, you know, trying to help conservation and, and keep the world together. But I really don't want to be around a lot of people. And God came into my life, and my plans changed substantially. My life is filled with people. It wasn't my plan for myself. But I'm so glad, I'm so grateful that I said yes to him. I can tell you now how miserable of a person I would be with a very miserable wife out in a mountain with just the two of us with no one to hear her scream. It would have been a terrible life. My thoughts, my plans, my ideas were based on selfish conceptions of what I thought was good and what I wanted. And I'm not knocking people who live in the mountains and who live those kinds of careers and those kinds of jobs. I'm just saying that I wasn't doing that for the good of humanity and thinking about what my contribution would be to the human experience. I was thinking about how much I didn't like people and didn't want to be around them. And God made a 180 in my life on that issue. And I have a happy life and a happy marriage and a lot of friends and a lot of purpose because I said yes to God 
on that path. So Jesus is born, Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The Magi are interesting characters. We don't know a lot about them. It says they're from the east. It seems like they've traveled a long way. They're probably not Jewish. They're from far off lands. They, this is a term that's sometimes used as advisors. So, you know, royal advisors. So they may be advisors to a foreign king. They seem to be focused a lot on the, on the stars. So they may be astrologers. But they've heard of the prophecies, and we find out a little bit later, they're aware of Old Testament prophecy. And passages like Daniel 9, to the careful and astute reader, would have told them that the Messiah should be born around this time in the city of Bethlehem. And so they show up, and they come to Jerusalem looking for a king. And what they find is King Herod. Herod, on the other hand, known as Herod the Great, emphasis on quotation marks, he was a great bastard, is what Herod was. He was a mean, vicious man. He ruled the area of Jerusalem from around 37 BC to 4 AD. He was half Jewish, which made him very unpopular to his subjects, gave him all kinds of identity issues. And he became a cruel and malicious ruler, known for his great acts of cruelty. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing around 70 AD, said, Herod was a, he, a man, he was of great barbarity towards all men equally and a slave to his passions, but above the consideration of what was right. He was a wicked, selfish, cruel man. And the Magi are coming because they've heard the Messiah is to be born. And they come to Herod and they're like, we think the Messiah has been born. Do you know where he is? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because he doesn't like competition. And when Herod is troubled, all Jerusalem is troubled with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he brings together all the religious rulers and those who are familiar with the Old Testament. And he says, so where does the Bible say this Messiah is going to be born? And they tell him, Bethlehem. In the city of Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you could see how Herod's skin would crawl. I'm the leader and the shepherd of the people of Israel. And how this, for a megalomaniac like Herod, would have stood out as a prophecy against the competition that he wants to squash. There's no consideration of, well, this is God's plan. There's no consideration of, well, what if this is what's best for the people of Israel? This is a direct threat to the power of Herod. And he is going to move to destroy it. 
So then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, good, good, go and find the child. Go and search carefully for him, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, the Magi went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the Magi here are our third group that we're looking at in terms of their connection with saying yes to God. They had read in the word of God that the Messiah would be born in a specific time in a specific place. They went on a great journey. They encountered Herod on that journey. Herod was like, tell me what you know, and then report back to me what you find. And this puts them in a real bind. They certainly had to have some understanding that Herod would not view a threat to his divine right to rule in a way that would have any positive outcomes for Jesus the Messiah, that which was spoken of by their forefathers for many hundreds of years. And yet if they defy Herod and they refuse to follow his instructions, that could very well mean their own horrible death. So do they defy Herod and risk their lives in order to protect Jesus Christ. Well, Matthew tells us, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. They hightailed it out of there. And so the thing, you know, that we can see here is that saying yes to God comes with risks. It may mean public humiliation. It may mean changes in life plans. It may mean conflict with authorities. It may be risks to personal well-being. But it ha while it has its risks, it also has its rewards. Think about this. Being the parents of the Messiah. That's a relationship with the all-powerful creator God of the universe, the Alpha, the Omega, the greatest being that ever has or ever will exist. And for all eternity forward in heaven, a billion years from now, he'll be like, hey, mom, hey, dad. There's only two people in eternity that are going to be called mom and dad by God. What an amazing thing. Just what a unique relationship to have with God and to be able to enjoy that. What price wouldn't be worth paying in the piddly few 50, 60, 70 years we may get on this earth to in all eternity to be connected with Jesus in such an intimate and personal ways, to be reminiscing with him about when he was a boy and the silly things that he did. That they got to see they got to see God come and become a, a bodied person and grow and learn. And they got a front row seat to understand and intimately connect with the character of who God is. No one got that. 
but Joseph and Mary because they said yes. Yes, they paid a heavy price, but that reward alone, let alone being a part of God's plan to save the human race from their sin, that in all eternity future, when we see Mary and we say Joseph, we're going to have to say, thanks for saying yes, guys. I'm here because you said yes. What an amazing act of courage, of faith, of obedience to God's ask. They made their mark. We will forever know who Mary is. We will forever know who Joseph is. We will forever know who the Magi are because they said yes to God. Much of the history of what's happened here will begin to fade a billion years down the road. But what will not fade are the stories of the people who said yes to God in the face of incredible personal cost. And that's not something that is unavailable to us. We can say yes to God and we will pay a heavy price. The world will make sure that you pay and the people you love pay a heavy price if you say yes to God. But the point is the world cannot distribute enough punishment to outweigh the glory of saying yes and the rewards that God will bring into your life for saying yes. And so the thing that we all really need to think about when we read this passage in Matthew is what is God asking me to do? Where are my opportunities to say yes to God? Because they happen every day. And we so easily dismiss them, rationalize against them, and just brush them aside as though, you know, they weren't real. We don't like thinking that we say no to God, but we do. And we have to develop a personal sensitivity to the questions that God would ask us every day. Are you willing to live for others? Are you willing to get up and do something to show someone my love? Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to connect? Are you willing to show up? Are you willing to go to home church tonight and be of service to someone else? Are you going to show up with a mentality of how can God use me tonight? Or are you going to show up with a mentality of well, this is just what I always do. Or I'm feeling a little bit down. I wonder if I can get someone to serve me. Are you willing to take risks like sharing your faith with people who may reject you if you do? Are you willing to lead a home group? Are you willing to take on the responsibility of helping other people 
study the word of God and learn how to reach out to their friends and lead and help people serve? Are you willing to volunteer to help the needy? Are you willing to go pick up everything in your life and go to another country where you know no one and be used by God because they do not know the gospel? Are you willing to stick out a difficult marriage and connect and fight for what God says is important? Are you willing to refuse to fold to social pressure on what God says is right? Are you willing to say yes to those things over and over again? Because the story of Joseph and the story of Mary, the stakes were higher. But they said yes. On the other hand, there's the alternative to saying yes, which if you're not clear on, that's saying no. Herod is a good example of that. He knew that Jesus was a threat to what he wanted, to his plans. You know, this is really a great example of the greatest threat to the gospel in your and my life. Is It's very difficult to accept that there is something greater than myself that has better plans and ideas for me than I do. That's the great offense of the gospel. The great offense of the gospel is you're broken and you need a savior. Your ideas about how to live your life are the reasons you are miserable. There's great offense to that. But it's no different than the offense to Herod. Herod wanted to be king. He felt he should be king, and he was willing to do whatever it took to continue to be king, even if that included murdering the Messiah or a whole bunch of more people. Jesus wasn't part of his plans, and he felt sure that being the great man that he was, he could circumvent God's plans. And when you have that attitude, whether you're a megalomaniac like Herod, or whether it's you or me, you ultimately become hardened and bitter because the more you say no to God, the less you can hear his voice. And the more you will focus on yourself and your vices and your desires. Look at what happened to Herod. Matthew 2.16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Kill all the babies that could possibly be Jesus. How do you get inside the head of that? That's the kind of thing that's very easy to look at and be like, well, some people are just so far gone. But the reality is, is the capacity for this is in all of us. When we are hardened and bitter and consumed with our disappointment and our rage at the pains that we have suffered and we refuse to let God in, we become evil, with unlimited capacity for evil. Now, most people don't reach this capacity. That's true. 
But there's an ongoing deprivation of character that when you start down that path leads you to more and more extreme forms of tyranny. Think about the chief priests and the scribes. These were the guys, these were the religious leaders. These were the guys who knew the Old Testament forward and backward. Herod calls them in and says, hey guys, so where's this Messiah who's supposed to be born? And they're like, Bethlehem, sir. You think they don't understand what Herod's going to do? You think they don't bear responsibility for telling Herod what the word of God says so he can use it for his own destructive purposes? What if they would have been like, we're not going to tell you. We would rather die. The cries of the children of Bethlehem are directly tied to the cowardice of these men. Because they said no to God and they said yes to Herod. They knew where Jesus would be born. They knew the truth as Jesus was born and he grew. Here came Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And he talked about love and he talked about compassion and he talked about mercy and he talked about forgiveness and he moved toward the tax collectors and the people that the Pharisees looked down their nose at. When the Pharisees tried to recruit him on their side, he called them whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. The battle between Jesus and the Pharisees began in Herod's courtroom. And eventually it led to the hardness of heart that led the Pharisees to accuse Jesus, falsely accuse him of blasphemy and to convince Pontius Pilate to hang him from a cross. They succeeded where Herod failed. And I bet they thought Herod was disgusting. But what they did was so much worse. We'll conclude then with, I think, a useful psalm that kind of just wraps up and, and really packages this whole dynamic that we're talking about in a way that I hope you'll ponder this week. As you pray and consider, God, where can I say yes? Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noon day. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. There you have the birth of Jesus. Thank you for the people that you put in our life that have said yes to you and shared with us. Thank you that we're a part of a community of people that say yes to you all the time. Thank you for what you're doing in our city. Thank you for the opportunity that's before us to reach out to those who are more aware of the whole in their life, who are more aware of their need to be connected to you and connected to others. 
And we just ask God that we'll, we'll have the courage to say yes when those opportunities come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.